in the ballpark, season 2020, here we go! that the last two teams standing are Victorian and after over 100 days away from home these incredibly resilient sides will play off in the 2020 AFL Grand Final Interstate at the almighty Gabba will it be the reigning Premier's Richmond eager to stamp their formidable side as one of the greatest teams of the modern era delivering free flags in four years and enter into dynasty territory after a 37-year premiership drought or will it be the Geelong Cats a team who knows success in the modern era securing three flags in five years after they broke a 44-year premiership drought themselves but they haven't been back to the big dance in nine years and if they win on Saturday night they'll be crowned one of the greatest and most consistent sides of the modern era, only missing one finals campaign in 13 years. Welcome to this week's grand final edition of In The Ballpark. I'm your host, Michael Serpal, and it is my privilege to present the two men who have been predicting winners left, right and centre. But can they, will they predict this year's premiers? Introducing the 400-game veteran umpire who will officiate his eighth virtual grand final, the umpire who will superintend Mike Brady's performance from an empty MCG and, I've heard, has the licence to kill any seagulls <laughs> that try to upstage Mr Brady or one B for Vola if he gets Steven Seagal <laughs> fever again. Steven Seagal, Steven Seagal, Steven Seagal. Hey, Steven Seagal. Hey, Steven, Steven Seagal. <laughs> it's Ryan. You have the wrong Ryan, Fev, but that's okay. You haven't used your tongue. Congratulations. Thanks, Fev. Ryan O'Keefe. Thanks, mate. <laughs> oh, I got a stiffy. Woo! <laughs> Fryzy Hartwick. Fryzy, welcome to you, and apologies for the Brendan Favola Brownlow reference. Oh, look, we can't go without. Never to be forgotten. Boys, it's here. We've been talking about it for ages, but oh my goodness me, we have finally made it to the hugest show of the year, bar none. So, Serps, another terrific introduction, of course. You continue to outdo yourself. Just a, uh, a little side congratulations, I suppose, is in order to, of course, the panel in the green... <laughs> for Saturday night. So that being uh, in the field, we have Matt Stevick, a 400-game veteran. Grand final number eight for him, and he's fifth in a row, just about the best in the business, you might say, a tremendous effort. Simon Meredith, who will umpire his sixth grand final, and Craig Fleer makes his grand final debut. 
the boundary umpires guys. We've got Michael Marantelli, three grand finals for him. Ian Burrows, who's done just the lazy eight. Matthew Konteshka with two and Matthew Tompkins with three. In the goals, we discussed the pre-show. Unfortunately, no David Roden, but maybe 2021 is his stage, perhaps. Matthew Durvin will officiate his first grand final alongside Stephen Piperno, who is into his third. Fantastic achievements all around there. Guys, it makes me just want to put on the green, come the bounce down on Saturday night and run around the living room pretending to do it myself. It's just fantastic, isn't it? How about that? So thanks again, Serp. And uh, boys, can't believe it. The big dance is here. Can't believe we've made it, Fryzy. And we are looking forward to seeing you run around the lounge room making your own umpiring decisions And I hope they have a little earpiece tuned up to the Gabba just in case they need a third party's opinion. And let's introduce the man who knows how many chemist warehouses, drug stores and spicy food sections of the supermarket. Chris Scott has raided in the last 24 hours. Admit fears his big Coleman key forward may have some Flu-like symptoms. Can't take any risks in 2020. The man who is also monitoring Geelong to see if they can get big Jeremy Cameron in a year early, just in case big Tomahawk is no good. And the man who will be trying to secure more tennis stars to present the Premiership Cup to the winning teams. Hey, does anyone know who Nick Kyrgios follows in the footy? Oh, it's Maxi Catflu, Chemist Warehouse Tonner. Maxi, welcome to you, mate. Thank you, sir. That's a great introduction. <laughs> it, it was a little bit scary. Tom Hawkins wasn't training and he's had, had some flu-like symptoms. It sent a bit of a shockwave and we're all just thinking, surely this is an economy tennis scenario all over again in grand final. We've got all the way through, but he's all good. He'll be playing, so... We've got a massive grand final and I can't wait to get into it. It's going to be amazing. And you just look to Geelong's last grand final appearance in 2011 and they had some little off-field dramas all week. Stevie with Jack. Stevie yeah, that's Jack, right, yeah. Maxie. Troublemaker. Stevie being a little bit sore. So perhaps it's maybe a good omen for things to come in the grand final. Hopefully. I think Stevie J kicked three goals that day from memory. <laughs> I remember him playing well. And do you remember that shot of him? Just like, I think he kicked one of the match winning goals and he's just like, he's going nuts and you can see all the spit coming out of his mouth. <laughs> that was an amazing day. Geelong's last grand final appearance, of course, in 2011. And it is a perfect segue into a big question I have for both of you gents. Last week, we spoke about some of our favourite preliminary finals memories, but what are our most memorable grand final memories? Boys, there are so many, to be honest. This question had me thinking, and I'm sure we could all probably take an hour plus to answer it. I'm actually going to go for a slightly less discussed match here, one that's probably one of the more underrated grand finals uh, in the past sort of decade or two, and it's 2011. It's the one that we were just speaking of then. Of course, Geelong's last appearance, and in fact, boys, the last time we've had two Victorian teams in a grand final, what a gap, nine years, and it happens to be the Cats there again. This one was I think arguably between the two best sides of that season, far and beyond all others. I think in the end, as strong as Collingwood were throughout, the Cats were the only team to beat them all season. Of course, the last of which happened to be on Grand Final. This is a fascinating game, guys, I reckon. For three and a little bit quarters, it was neck and neck. I think Collingwood even pinched that lead back as late as just before three-quarter time. Some big performances in the Tomahawk. It was two Grand Finals with two excellent 
performances produced and, of course, two victories to the Cats. So, goodness me, I don't want him to miss this Saturday. That is for sure. It was an unbelievable sort of uh, spectacle, I suppose. But in the end, Jimmy Bartell was the man. 26 disposals, Mm. three goals. That one that he kicked from the boundary line, I think, is probably etched into the memories of most. This was, uh, of course, as we know, their third flag in five years at the time. We know how dominant that team was uh, throughout that era of football. And even though this is the first grand final appearance since then, I think it's still a testament to their unbelievable consistency that they've been right up there top four most years. I think they may have only missed the finals once since then to now, which is just extraordinary. So many, many possible answers for this one, guys. But I'm keen to get your selections here, though. They said they were too old, too slow. But in the end, Frizy, what were they? Too good. How could you forget it? That was it. We should mention this because Travis Varko retired last week. And you remember that grand final? He kicked the first two goals from memory. And also that goal in the last quarter, the, he started on the halfback flank and pretty much worked up all the way about 30 metres out in the pocket. I think it was Jimmy Bartel who handballed it to him in the end in the he ended up finishing on his left. The game was probably already over, but that was one of the many sealers that Geelong seemed to kick that day. But yeah, I just want to mention Travis Varco because he was awesome that day and he ended up going to Collingwood and um, kicking the first goal in a grand final for Collingwood against the Eagles in 2018, which is another awesome grand final. But you're right, Frizy, that grand final doesn't get enough credit. It was such a good game up until three-quarter time. And those sides, it sort of has a little bit of an echo with this grand final coming up because... Geelong and Collingwood have been two of the most dominant sides for probably that five-year period from 2007 to 2011, where it was sort of Geelong, Collingwood, St Kilda, Western Bulldogs and Hawthorne. Whereas the two sides coming out with Geelong and Richmond have sort of been, they've been in the top four for probably the last three or four years, and but they haven't, they haven't really played each other in a grand final. They've had a number of finals like Collingwood and Geelong did in that 2007 to 11 period, but they've never played each other in a grand final where all roads have sort of led to the grand final in 2000. And 11 when Geelong finally played Collingwood and now in 2020 when Geelong and Richmond are finally facing in, in a grand final. You're absolutely right, gents. One of the great grand finals we have seen. And I also remember Travis Cloak unloading some massive bombs mm. from outside 50 as well. There was a lot of questions about his accuracy in times gone by, but he was able to put that all behind him and <laughs> a lot of banter from the boundary and managed to sneak through those goals. And Nathan Cracker as well is another big player for Collingwood during that period of time. There are four players from that Geelong side who will line up on Saturday night. So it is good to see their durability. Harry Taylor, Joel Salwood, Tom Hawkins, and Mitch Duncan Duncan. are those four players who will be featuring on the weekend. Maxie, let's get to your most memorable grand final. We're on a bit of a Geelong theme here, but I reckon my favourite one is the 2009 grand final. That year, from memory, they faced each other in round 14 when they were 13 and 0. Old Mickey Gardner took a big grab in the last minute or two and kicked the goal. But that year was pretty special because Geelong and St Kilda were far and away the two top teams and to get the two big dogs, it was probably, you could argue, one of St Kilda's best teams ever and against Geelong's team who was going for redemption when they probably themselves put one of their greatest seasons ever in 2008 and failed at the last step against Hawthorne in a big upset that day. So for Geelong, it was all about redemption and St Kilda was probably one of their best chances to win their second premiership. It was just a cracking grand final. I think only goal the difference when the siren blew and Max Rooks ended up kicking a goal after the siren. So it was a two-goal margin in the end, but it was a tight tussle all day. So St Kilda had their chances. I think in the first quarter, they were pretty wasteful. Milne and Schneider, from memory, missed a few sh- shots that they probably 
could have kicked. And then, of course, the Tommy Hawkins goal where it famously hit the post. So, and also the Muddy Scarlet toe poke to um, Gary Ablett that, of course, ended up in uh, Paul Chapman's hands who kicked the goal and won the Norm Smith that day. So that's probably my favourite grand final. And again, another wet Geelong grand final victory. Mm. Another wet Malvernian day but that is an absolute thrilling grand final, that one. One of my favourite grand finals was Hawthorne versus Sydney. It was 2012, and Hawthorne were pretty strong favourites, I remember, going into this game. But Sydney, their bloods culture was really, really strong, especially in this game. Sydney's first goal of that day, where Nick Malczewski snapped this extraordinary goal, and it just floated through. And who would have thought one of the very last goals kicked to seal that game would be another Nick Malczewski goal, despite the fact he was a defender, mind you. He managed to sneak up there and kick an extraordinary goal. But this game had such massive momentum swings. Sydney got to a fair margin throughout the second quarter and you had players popping up like Morton and Lewis Roberts-Thompson who you had barely heard of. They aren't their upper-tier superstars, but they were contributing and kicking big goals. And you thought at half-time, maybe this really great Hawthorne side have played their grand final the week before against Adelaide, but to Hawthorne's credit and one astonishing grand final performer in Buddy Franklin kicks some huge goals. Yeah, he kicked three in the third quarter against Teddy Richards, who had held him pretty quiet for the rest of the day. And most of those goals as well, Maxie, were from outside 50. So, yeah. you know, on that favoured left... Two very long ones. Oh, they were extraordinary kicks. And I think they were kicking with the wind at the time, but it certainly helped. And in the last quarter, David Hale kicked a goal to put that breathing space a little bit more comfortable for Hawthorne. But... Sydney were not to be denied. They just kept coming back. There was a Kieran Jack goal and then a Dan Hannabury goal. And I remember Dan put his hands up and went, it's not over yet. And Adam Goods kicked a goal. He'd injured his knee before that as well. So he's rendered pretty useless. He was just standing and pretty much standing in the 50 and he managed to kick a goal. Yeah, that was one of the great goals, that boys. It was. And he rolled it through and that was pretty much the sealer on the game. But that Nick Malczewski finish... Definitely put it beyond doubt. But I do remember Hawthorne, especially in that last quarter, very reminiscent of some of the misses in some of these preliminary finals and grand finals gone by. Definitely did cost Hawthorne that game. I remember Brad Sewell, I think he had two shots in a row and he missed both of them. But he was, he was excellent. He was probably one of Hawthorne's better players that day. But yeah, that, that was another great grand final. And yeah, as you said, Hawthorne, but you could tell how much that hurt them. Um, losing such a grand final and they obviously went on to win three in a row. So, yeah, another great grand final. It sure was. Probably another one that's a little bit um, underrated too. You sometimes forget just how close these games are all day, even the ones that might finish at more than a goal, the difference. It's very easy to overlook that. On that particular day, that was extraordinary and you got no doubt that that result stirred Hawthorne to what they achieved the next few seasons. I'm going to throw one name out there, lads, for that particular game. Do you remember the the cameo from a fella, Mitch Morton is his name, Mm, and he played at a a couple of other teams before Richmond for one and was huge in getting them them over the line that day. But those two goals at just about the most important time, Sir, you mentioned from Nick Malczewski, just unforgettable. Do you remember when um, I think Sam Mitchell threw the ball over Jared McVeigh's head and he got a 50 and kicked a set shot? That was a massive turning point in the game as well. Yeah, what just so, 
so wasteful it was. I, I think that was the day as well. We saw the Cyril and Lewis Jetta sprint yes, down, down yeah, one was. wing of the MCG. As Dennis Committee said, it would be a major event at any stadium in the world. And mm. I'll tell you what, Cyril, he couldn't catch him. Lewis yeah. Jetta, I think, the week before had this extraordinary run and all 22 of Collingwood's players were chasing <laughs> him and they just couldn't catch him. <laughs> I reckon he took three bounces and he ran about 90 metres. Yeah. Or probably 100 metres. Yeah. You don't have to be too clever to do that, Matt, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Take a brave umpire to climb up though Would you Would you have caught him for that Friday? Oh, probably not I think you'd never forgive yourself If you ruined that moment, would you? Oh God, no But I can probably imagine Some umpires might have been brave enough to do that Maybe our man Razor Ray That's why he's missing this weekend <laughs> yeah. Who knows? It's entirely possible, gents I think these are really good choices We've come up with here What a list, gentlemen What a comprehensive list for our favourite grand final memories. And there were many more before our time, but they are some of the best that we've seen with our very own eyes. Let's get into the preliminary finals. And it was massive. Port Adelaide up against Richmond at Adelaide Oval in the closest prelim final win they've had in recent times. The Tigers stole the match in a wet and low-scoring affair at the Adelaide Oval. Port Adelaide will rue their missed opportunities in the final quarter when their ineffective inside 50 entries sailed into Richmond's dual premiership ruckman, Toby Nan Curvis's hands on multiple occasions. And although a fittingly courageous effort from 260 game warrior Brad Ebert stopped a certain Richmond mark, it was unfortunately all too late as Richmond marched into their third grand final in four years. Port were impressive though, gents. But in the end, the experience of the Tigers stood up in the big moments where Port were panicking a little bit with the ball and playing it on momentum. Gents, what are our takes from this big game? Oh, it, was, it was an interesting watch. Probably wasn't the greatest spectacle, but it pretty much all just came down to the last quarter where Richmond sort of dominated the clearances, where Port Adelaide dominated the clearances in the first half. But... We discussed this last week that Richmond traditionally aren't a great clearance team where Port Adelaide, St Kilda to a lesser extent are. They ended up winning clearances by 12 and they were 12, 12 up in the last quarter itself. So Richmond sort of had control of the ball and I know the last probably five minutes was in Port Adelaide's forward 50 where they just bombed it away. But Richmond sort of had most of the territory for the first half of that last quarter where they managed to kick two goals which both went to Kane Lambert with that controversial free kick for the delivery out of bounds against Hayden Charlotte. I was listening to Ken Hinckley on AFL 360 and he said his biggest regret from it was that he didn't send more numbers to even up the stoppages and that's probably where Port Adelaide feel that Richmond got on top of them in the last quarter but we've flagged it all year that we're worried about Port Adelaide's going to get into a grand final and they're not going to have enough avenues to go other than Charlie Dixon and you sort of saw in that last five minutes their overall on Dixon where they just kept on kicking it to him and Richmond had numbers, extra numbers in their D50 and they just kept um, intercepting it and as you said Toby Nankowitz, oh. for some reason in, in big games he sort of just comes out of nowhere and starts taking intercept marks, I think he took three in that last quarter but yeah Richmond, they had three defenders and pretty much play Adelaide they went inside 50 a number of times in that last in that last probably five minutes, but they never really looked like scoring because you could sort of you could sort of see the difference in finals experience where Port Adelaide just kept on bombing it and bombing it and try to get an entry to Dixon that Hamish Hartley kick inside 50 where he's just bombed it mindlessly and there was only Richmond player there. He'd like there were no Port Adelaide players near him. So you could just tell that these blokes they're under pressure. 
they didn't really know what to do. Like, they were just kicking the ball mindlessly. I know Travis Bokes, he's had an exceptional year, but he had that one kick where he, I think he had Carl Amon and Robbie Gray both free around the 50-metre mark where I know maybe it would have been stretching them for distance, both of them, but if it, even if they hadn't taken that mark, they could have at least had a shot at goal or had another chance of spotting up a lead. So it came down to that last quarter pretty much and just the, the amount of finalness experience that Richmond have gained over the last three or four years compared to what Port Adelaide have. Well, I don't think they've played finals in recent years or n- near as many as Richmond has. You could just clearly see the difference in the level of composure. I wanted to discuss with you guys, did you think the wet weather hurt Port Adelaide and helped Richmond at all? The more of a scrap type game certainly works a lot better with the Richmond system and I suppose mm. Port Adelaide not being able to run on top of the ground as we're so used to, perhaps that didn't help. Yeah, it was really a case, wasn't it, of um, just a seasoned finals winning system in play against one that was sort of on its free trial, if you like. You know, we yeah. we hadn't been able to see much of it um, prior to this season, not with this group of players anyway. So as you said, Maxie, yeah, very much realised our fears all season. I reckon we discussed it nearly every week with Port Adelaide that despite the latter position, despite what we were seeing and how much improvement there was to like, especially with the young players, this was always the hurdle. We weren't sure they'd be able to cross. So um, definitely not surprised, I don't think. But yeah, oh, look, those um, those slippery, greasy conditions, I think, would only favour Richmond more and um, possibly will again if if it's the case uh, up in Brisbane this, this week. I agree with you there as well, Frizy. I think those wet weather conditions, the way Richmond like to move, it's surge, it's chaos. They like hacking it off the ground, tapping it forward. And there was a lot of times, and this is a very interesting segue, there was a lot of times where there were a lot of hacks off the ground and they went very close to the boundary line and spilled over. And there weren't too many players near the drop of the ball, meaning they paid deliberate out of bounds. What were our takes on the deliberate out of bounds? And Maxi, you touched on probably the most contentious one at the end of the game, which we all saw it. Tom Rockcliffe was right near where... Hamish Hartlett was tapping the ball, but unfortunately, Hamish Hartlett put a little bit too much heat on the ball, flew straight past him. Did the umpires get the rule right for most of the scenarios on the night? I think there's two separate arguments here. So if you're just saying, were those deliberate out of bounds, five out of six of them were. I think the one that they got wrong was the Dion Prestia one where he just hacked it. I don't think he was even looking where he was going to kick it and then ended up. Um, just rolling out of bounds. He took the territory. Ball ended up going sideways and it went out of bounds. I don't think that was actually deliberate. I think he was just trying to hack it as far as he could and see where it went. But um, the two separate arguments are, are they deliberate out of bounds? Yes, they were. But then the second argument is, were they consistent with what we've seen for the rest of the year? And I think you'd probably argue that that Hamish Harlett one and amongst the other ones, you tend to get more leniency when a teammate is in the vicinity of the area that you're getting it out of bounds, which is sort of the frustration because was he trying to get it out of bounds deliberately? Yes, he was. But we've seen throughout the year consistently that if there's a teammate where you're getting the ball out of bounds, you're given leniency, which he wasn't. It's a hard argument because was he trying to get it out of bounds deliberately? Yes. 
But we've seen all throughout the year that players who try to get the ball out and they've got a team out there are usually given leniency, which Hamish Hartley wasn't, which is probably why Port Fernandes is so frustrated. You probably wouldn't mind so much if that was paid at a different stage of the game. I guess maybe that's not right. I, I guess if it's a free kick, it, it should be a free kick at any time. I just think it lacked a little bit of feel for the situation of that game. My goodness, it's basically handed a shot for goal that's all but put the game out of Port Adelaide's reach. I've never been a fan of pinging players who are kicking for territory, as you say, Maxi, even if it means hacking the ball long down the line. I mean, you have to remember, not only are they taught to do this as a young player, sometimes to clear the ball out of defence, they're under enormous pressure from the time they pick up that ball, even just to throwing it onto the boot. Um, we're talking not even a second probably to to react and to evade the trouble. So I never like seeing those paid either, but it must be... The direction because we we see plenty of them that consistency needs to come through and especially in a big final nine minutes to go four points the difference kane lambert snaps that goal truly and suddenly it's a 10 point margin on a wet night where the margin all night has never been more than 11 points either side yeah just shows how costly that decision was so we don't want to see that this week in the grand final. Stay consistent, umpires. Another thing that we highlighted that we had a big concern over was how they were going to contain one of the greatest finals players we've ever seen, Dustin Martin. And, gents, it's fair to say Port Adelaide didn't quite do their homework nor execute in the way we would have expected them to. Oh, <laughs> this baffles me. How <laughs> You can let a bloke who's won two Norm Smiths, one at Brownlow, He's arguably the best finals player of all time. I know we've prob- we probably didn't see Lee Matthews and Kevin Bartlett and blows like that, but definitely the best finals player that we've seen in our time. You just let him go and he kicks two goals <laughs> and he probably set up, I think he set up the Tom Lynch one as well. So a lot of coaches sort of just say, oh, we'll back our system, we don't tag. But surely if a bloke plays a fair bit of his time going from midfield and then he just sneaks forward, you might put a backman somewhere near him, but I don't understand it. And seeing the way that he ragged old Darcy Byrne-Jones too and the height difference and probably the, the strength and stamina difference between those two guys, it just, it baffled you. It seriously did. And honestly, to think that your system is going to stand up against a guy that good, we saw how well Brisbane did it in the second half. They put more time into him. They were hitting him around the stoppages. They were playing man-on-man with him and it had a massive difference on his output. He looked more shaky when he was kicking the ball inside 50, and it made a difference, guess what, to the result that Brisbane managed to have in that first week of the finals. So if Geelong are any chance of winning this weekend, they'll put a little more effort and a little more time into Dustin Martin. Guys, what do we think of Brad Ebert's incredible last-ditch effort to try and save the game where he went back with the flight He was no chance of marking it, but that wasn't his intended purpose. He just wanted to make sure that ball wasn't marked by the Richmond forward. It really speaks to the man that Brad Ebert is and what he's represented at that club. He came to Port Adelaide at a time where it wasn't really a destination club and he really turned that culture around. He's a hard worker, but it's unfortunate to see him go out this way and the concussions, well, 
we just hope that's not going to be an issue going deeper into the rest of his life. Yeah, it was pretty symbolic of his entire career. He's always put his body in the line. He's pretty, he's not the biggest unit. Probably be 6'1", six, 6'2", six, but he's a pretty sort of skinny unit. But um, he always puts his body on the line. And to go out that way, unfortunately, he's probably pretty symbolic of his career. It's a pretty nasty-looking concussion. He was pretty wobbly on those legs. So he played really well as well, which is the sad thing about it. He's probably got, apart from the concussions, if he hadn't had that um, history, probably got one or two years left in him, unfortunately, which we're going to miss out on. But, yeah, it's, it's signified his whole career. It really has. It sums it up. A largely unheralded player whose career has probably got better as it's gone on. And as you say, age probably wasn't as much a factor in the decision. So it's a it's a shame because he was still very much um, playing good football and would have been in their, in their best side for a couple more to come. Let's get on to the second preliminary final. It was Brisbane up against Geelong at the Gabba. The prelim final. Monkey is finally off Geelong's back. That's right, Billy. You are the king of the Geelong pubs. Oh, yes. (laughs) They've booked a date with Richmond after easily accounting for Brisbane by 40 points in the end. That margin of 40 points could have been more as the Cats dominated in the first three quarters but couldn't convert on the scoreboard whilst the Lions took their chances, kicking three goals from their first seven inside 50s, including two from spearhead Charlie Cameron, who has a good record against Geelong in preliminary finals in times gone by. A well-disguised throw from Paddy Dangerfield set up one of Ablett's two goals in a turning back-of-the-clock performance in his second-last game. Geelong went into the final change 18 points up, and when Ryan Lester missed yet another gettable goal that could have made it a two-goal game with 10 minutes left, the Lions... Well, by then, they were out of chances. And Geelong stormed home with all of their stars and lesser lights contributing strongly. Geelong's final experience seemed to count against the slow-starting and uninspired Lions. Gents, what were your takes on the contest and how big of a win was this for the Cats? It was. It was significant for many reasons. But look, the monkey off the back is the most obvious one. Perhaps for Brisbane, uh, guys, next year is the logical next step where they make it right to the very end, perhaps. Um, at least they have managed to get that winning final under their belt. But um, yeah, there's nothing more frustrating, is there? Even as a neutral fan watching sides kick themselves out of contention in big finals, especially sudden death ones like this. It reminds me a little bit of Brisbane's wasteful football last year against Richmond in that first final up there at the Gabba. Yeah, Geelong's experience and the class certainly shone through. They seem to know that it's last chance for Gaz and perhaps a few others. I don't really want to make it all about that because there's more layers to this story, of course, than just Gaz. But you can't help but think the, the symbolism meant just that little bit more for them, guys. Knowing that this could well be Gaz's last performance, yeah, they really lifted, didn't they, Geelong? And it's important to talk about some of the lesser lights that we mentioned at the start. One man we must mention, the Ed Sheeran lookalike, the man who doesn't seem to play too many finals to the best of his ability, Gary Rowan. Well, gents, he finally displayed his true potential in finals and perhaps he will go a step further next week. But it must be said, those lesser lights and those players like Gary Rowan who 
have been known to go asleep in big finals while they finally stood up. I was really worried about Brisbane's forward line coming up against Geelong's defence. When you look at Geelong's defence, they've got so much experience where you look at Brisbane's um, forward line, they're not the most experienced. So I'll go through them. Hitwood had five touches. Charlie Cameron had five touches. Cam Rain had six touches. And Daniel McStay had three touches. So apart from Charlie Cameron's two early goals, they pretty much towed them up. And then we look at the Geelong side. So... Hawkins kicked two goals three against Harris Andrews, so he's had five shots on goal. They predominantly played danger forward, so um, pretty much what that means is Gary Rowan gets off the chain, kicks three goals, and then you've got Gary Ablett playing against um, Daniel Rich, who's not really a lockdown defender. He more just rolls up and tries to kick goals from 60 and get as much kicks as he can through the middle. So Gary Ablett kicks two goals, two, and then it has seven score involvements. And then you look at Geelong's top possession getters. So they're damn good players, but they're not relying on Dangerfield and Salwood. So Duncan had 22, Menegal 19, Stewart 19, and Guthrie 19. So you can just tell that that depth that Geelong have built through their midfield is why they're such a better side than they probably were in previous previous occasions when they'd fallen short in preliminary finals. Even just when you rattle off those names there, it's a midfield with serious depth. And I think just rising to the occasion a little better, understanding how to handle themselves in that sort of situation really worked in their favour. Not to knock Brisbane at all. I don't think anyone um, could for another season of improvement. And you can only expect much of the same going forward, especially if they pick up Joe, guys, as we've touched on a few times already. It's a good point you make there, though, Fryzy, about Joe, because as you touched on, Maxie, not too many contributors up forward, considering Hipwood and McStay kicked one goal between them. So... He might be the missing piece of the puzzle. He's not going to help them in front of goal, is he? Well, possibly not. No. His <laughs> accuracy ain't the best, is it? No. We know that all too well. Yeah, well, we haven't really discussed what are we thinking of the pre-finals by because both of the teams who won in week one um, lost this week in Port Adelaide and Brisbane. So I think the winning percentage for the teams who won qualifying finals before the pre-finals by was up around 87%, where I think post the pre-finals by it's about 40%. So it's a massive change. So, yeah, I think even when just watching the game, Brisbane seemed flat when you compare their performance to the qualifying final against Richmond. So what do you blokes think about? Do you reckon the pre-finals by hurts the team who win the qualifying final and have a week off before their prelims? One of the biggest damning stats that I saw throughout the week with the pre-finals by is that since they've had it in in 2016, there's only been one occasion where both of the qualifying finals teams have went on to play in the grand final. And that, of course, was in 2017, where Adelaide and Richmond both qualified in their prelims and then won those prelims at home. So considering that's the only year that that has actually occurred, it essentially means that those teams that are going the long way around seem to have a better chance and playing those extra games are helping them. Yeah, gents, look, the evidence is certainly mounting against it, isn't it? Look, I can't see them changing it if I really had to guess but um, it almost seems like sometimes playing one game in in three weeks when you especially if you get that win in the first week of finals assuming you're in the top four as we mentioned that can really sap the energy and momentum out of a side then all of a sudden you've got to somehow get yourself up for a preliminary final against a team that have just won their own game and probably um, just as hungry, if not more. Gil McLaughlin seems to love it, which makes me feel like it's not going to get changed. Yeah, when you look at the evidence, it seems to be mounting against it. That is the comprehensive coverage of 
the two preliminary finals. And of course, very soon we will preview the big dance, which we are very excited about. It is time for one of our favorite segments. Here we go. On the show, it is Bring It Back, Give It The Sack, Have A Crack. Oh, yes, Bring It Back, Sportsmanship. Oh, don't we love it in our game? And it's very difficult when your team loses to show that class. But on the weekend, we saw it in spades. Now, Richmond forward Tom Lynch has been in the headlines for all the wrong reasons of late. His on-field performances have been match-winning, but his clumsiness has made opposition supporters furious with him. After the game on Friday night, the Port fans were still upset with Lynch, taking their disgust even further, throwing a perfectly good $11 mixer (laughs) all over the Richmond star, which is a very expensive way to get back at Tom Lynch, considering the poor guy has had to fork out a fair bit of money himself. (laughs) However, one of the most heartwarming moments from the weekend was when a young Port Adelaide fan named Archer walked over to Tom Lynch on the boundary to congratulate him. Oh, yes, that is correct. On his performance and apologised on behalf of the other ill-behaved Port fans. So talk about a young messenger trying to prove to Richmond and Victorian people that, hey, we're not all feral. (laughs) Now, Archer's father, Jason, also shed some more light on the heartwarming moment, saying he wanted to explain to his son that it is important to know how to behave after a loss and to show class. Does Archer's dad deserve father of the year? As long as he wasn't the one who threw the drink at Tom Lynch, (laughs) then I think he does. Oh, what are our thoughts on this lovely little moment at the end of the game, gents? No, it was nice to say. I think Tom Lynch probably needed a bit of good publicity. So, yeah, it was was nice to say, but... um... Yeah, you've got to you've got to know how to lose respectfully in, in junior sports. When you see some of these sports who are, are no longer keeping score and stuff, I think sometimes this sort of, this sort of shows that sports are a great way of showing people both how to win and how to lose in a good manner. So, yeah, it was good to see from Tom Lynch. Sportsmanship and a little bit of respect like that will never go out of fashion. I don't think. Um, always nice to see. These are just the little bits of detail and moments that years down the track, for some reason. You never forget them. No, you don't. They really stand out. And for that young boy, he'll be remembered as a good sportsman and and a good person who can show class in times where, let's say, older people around him, mind you, aren't being role models. So I think it's a great symbol. And Tom Lynch, well, as you guys mentioned, that's a bit of good publicity. Give it the sack. Presenting the Brownlow Medal to yourself. Okay, gentlemen, I understand We are currently in a pandemic and we are trying to show how social distancing can keep this virus away. But come on, these players are getting COVID tests every single day. Everyone in that room is COVID negative. Yet there is something out of a jewellery store (laughs) sitting there with the Brownlow medal on it where he has to pull the thing off the dummy and put it over his own neck. I mean, come on! (laughs) One of the greatest parts of getting the Brownlow medal is receiving it from a previous Brownlow medal winner or an absolute champion, a legend of our game. Chris Fagan was in the room. They've got a good relationship, him and Lockie Neal. Use some common sense. Simon Black... 
a previous Brownlow medal champion and also Brisbane legend was in the room as well. Why couldn't he give it to Lockie Nil? What is going on, AFL? It's a special moment and you've taken it away from Lockie. But the one good thing I think to come out of this gentleman is that it's good motivation for him to take his game to another level so he can finally get his good friend, Nat Fife. I think they're still good friends. Nat <laughs> Fife to give him that brown low medal and hopefully win two from two. No, it was piss poor from Channel 7. Or I think the ones who are responsible for organising that. I mean, seriously, as you said, Every single person in that room is COVID tested and you can't get a bloke to shake his hand and put a medal around his neck. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, even have a disclaimer, everyone in the room is COVID tested, so they're allowed to interact. People throughout the night hugging each other, giving each other high fives, shaking each other's hands, kissing each other on the cheek, and someone can't put a medal around his neck. How good would it have been for Brisbane Lions fans to see Simon Black present Lockie Neal with his medal? That would have been awesome to see. But um, Channel 7 just stuffed this up. This was stupidity. Didn't they drop the ball? Surely it's a no-brainer. Um, it's a terrible look. I, I agree. As you said, guys, they're being... COVID tested in that environment every 10 minutes, just about, I think. It was okay for him to give his wife a kiss when he won, and so he should. Goodness me, one one handshake and a little moment to celebrate either with a former club champion and winner of it, as you say, or his own coach. Goodness me, what better person to have in the room to present than your own coach? They might wish they had their time again with that. I don't think it's been received overly well, understandably. Secondly as well, if you go on that logic, then he shouldn't have been able to kiss the medal itself because that's against the COVID policy. So come on. You know, only a couple of moments later is there Chris Fagan giving a massive bear hug to Lockie Neal. I mean, come on. It's not going to make a difference. Just give him the medal, put it around his neck and make it happen. So, Jen, say it with me. Let's get on to have a crack. And I have a message for all those wonderful Victorians living in metropolitan Victoria. This have a crack is for you. As we know, grand final day will be a subdued affair with restrictions still being pretty tight here in metropolitan Victoria. The Premier issued a stern warning that Melburnians can't have others over to their house on Saturday night to watch the all-Victorian grand final. However, I have a solution for you. Melburnians from up to two households can gather outdoors. So I say, bring out the big screens, fill up your water bottles with beer, have a footy in hand to say that you're doing recreational exercise and celebrate the grand final in an above board manner. However, in saying all of that, supposedly the weather is meant to be pretty wet during that day in Melbourne. So you may not be able to go outside after all. Anyway, to the Victorian Premier, I say, open up the MCG to Victorian-based Geelong and Richmond supporters have tables scattered out across the Hello Turf, practice social distancing, of course, and enjoy some live music from Mike Brady and Seagull Culling from our man Fryzy. How about that idea? And when there is a goal scored, do a live stream cross from the MCG. None of this Toyota... Fan zone bullshit. <laughs> yep, do a proper live cross to the MCG where the Melbourne Metropolitan crowd in their small little hubs are going bananas. And then cross 
to a silent Swan Street just to remind the rest of the country we are still in lockdown and Richmond is in fact a safe place while the grand final is on. What do we reckon about this, gentlemen? Surely this gets done. I'd love to see it, mate, but I can see no way that Dan Andrews is going to allow it, unfortunately. But what I will say is I was, like, so gutted when Geelong won and we realised that for the first time in however many years, as far as you mentioned earlier, that we've finally got an all-Victorian grand final and it's not going to be at the MCG. This grand final, Richmond versus Geelong, would have, can you imagine 100,000 at the G this Saturday? How good that would have looked? It's a... Bloody shame, isn't it? And I agree, Serbs. I'm, I'm, I'm over fan zone, whatever it's called. It was all right at the start, but geez, you know, they have to show it after every goal. I suppose that's the point of it, but I'm bloody sick of it. This is a great idea. I tell you, with a little bit more planning, and I don't know, had we have had, God forbid, a day grand final, I'm not sure if we've ever had one <laughs> before, but or had it been slightly nicer weather forecast as well, this could have all just synced perfectly if only we must agree gents it's fantastic to see the grand final being played considering at the start of this season it didn't look likely it's a nice little reward for all of those people doing it tough everywhere in victoria and around australia and around the world although it's been tough we've managed to get a grand final and that's the most important thing so at the end of the day as tough as it will be not being there as big as this could have been with a hundred thousand plus at the mcg at least we've got a grand final guys absolutely man okay it is time for my finals footy memory As mentioned on previous episodes, the September-October holidays often marked an Australian road trip. But where to today? We've already visited Amazing Adelaide, Mount Buggery, Humpty Bong and Flirtation Hill. <laughs> where to now, Michael, you may ask? Well, the year was 2013 and our destination was wild western australia yes driving to western australia from the state of victoria is a long journey 3500 kilometers to get there and that's roughly 36 hours of straight driving or five days if you're a civilized person, which is about 700 kilometers a day where you can take much needed breaks. Gentlemen, have you ever done the drive from Melbourne to Perth? Thankfully, no. No, likewise. Yet, and it's not in the plans either. Soft, gentlemen, soft. Uh, uh, but in saying that, though, it's a good time to get your learning driving hours up, Frizy. Okay, well, if I, if I hadn't known that when I was on my learners, it might have been good, but yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear you got your full license anyway, Fryzy. I should have known that. But yes, if you are a learning permit driver, it's perfect to get your hours up. And boy, did I get my hours up. 50 hours while I was away on that trip. It's a proper full-on Australian road trip, gentlemen, but quite an enjoyable one. And at the time, it was the 2013 final series. And on our first day of travel, we noticed Geelong were playing against Fremantle. And throughout the day, we received updates on the game. A game that was closer than we first expected. By the time we got to our accommodation, we tuned in to the middle of a tense final quarter. And when Fremantle's Stephen Hill came onto the ground from the interchange bench, collecting a ball that looked certain to run out of bounds, he collected, gathered, and kicked a remarkable goal, putting the Fremantle Dockers 
into their first home preliminary final in their short history. And when I looked at our trip's itinerary, I noticed we were going to be in Perth for the lead-up to the historic big match. Now, gents, do you remember this game against the Geelong Cats? It was a incredible match. And did you give Fremantle the Purple Haze any chance of upsetting the Cats in this game? I, I do remember it well. They actually played it on Fox a few weeks ago when they were playing like all, all, all-time great finals. But to go down to Geelong and pull off one of the all-time great upsets was an, um, a remarkable effort. It sure was. As you say, I don't think anyone gave them a single chance. And there was sort of a bit of the general criticism flying around about uh, the Cats getting access to that uh, final, of course, down there. In the end, it didn't even matter. And we probably didn't know it at the time that Frio were on their way to... A grand final appearance. Quite an incredible game, gents. And got to be said, when we arrived in the township of Fremantle, the town was truly buzzing. Everything was purple. And I mean everything. The footpaths were painted purple. Balloons, streamers, signs saying go, Frio. Anchors on top of Chiappuccinos. Matthew Pavlidge kettles. <laughs> Hayden Ballantyne face mask, which would be perfect during this pandemic. And Ryan Crowley's purple sweatbands. And let's not forget <laughs> purple sausages. Yes, purple sausages from the local butcher. <laughs> Gents, would you ever buy a purple sausage? No. <laughs> no, no, and I wouldn't take it for free either. Sorry, gents. <laughs> Don't know if purple is exactly the most encouraging colour. Don't even want to ask if that's a kidney or if that's a whale from the Fremantle doctor. <laughs> but I don't know if I can trust it. Now, the town was filled with the purple haze. But what was it like for the Dockers team that were on their finals high, led by the inspirational skipper Matthew Pavlidge and season coach Ross Lyon? Well, today we've brought to the show a man who was instrumental in Fremantle's push towards their first ever grand final appearance. A man who is a true Victorian from Shepparton, but made his way to the Fremantle Dockers in 2010 and played 126 games for them and then moved to the Gold Coast Suns to play 15 games for a accumulated total of 141 games. He's a free-time Ross Glenn Denning medalist. He is the AFL Player Association Best First Year Player in 2010. And he is an all-round legend who will be giving us a insight into those incredible days in 2013 as Fremantle made history. And this man is none other than Michael Barlow. Michael, welcome to In the Ballpark today, mate. Uh, thanks for having me on. Very appreciative of that. Now, in sport, we love rivalries. And obviously, the most well-known rivalry in the West is between Fremantle and the West Coast Eagles. But if we're talking about obscure rivalries, it must be said, Geelong and Fremantle would be right in the picture as they've dished up some succulent contests over the last decade or so. Now, in 2012, the Dockers won their second final in their history and knocked out the reigning Premier's Geelong. A year later, you're playing Geelong again, but this time you're playing in a qualifying final at Simmons Stadium, one of the hardest road trips in the AFL. 
Tell us about your memories from that clash, Michael, and how confident were you that you could upset the Cats and book a home preliminary final? Yeah, so the question was relating to the qualifying final and the, and the memories around that. One of the most special, if not the most special game, I think, in my career, in my existence at Freo, there was a lot of special ones. Yeah, the Mark Harvey era from, from when I first arrived was a, a very memorable era for me because it was a fresh start um, in an AFL career for, for myself. So... Probably through to, obviously, 2015, the end of there, we, we got so close a number of times. And then 2016, we just went, well, bang, down all over pretty quickly. <laughs> um, but the 2013 year, yeah, probably remains the most special because we snuck up on a couple of teams as that season progressed. And, um, you know, internally, we had a, an enormous amount of belief and, and that propelled us into a top four position. No one coming into, I suppose, the back end of that year had much expectation of us outside of ourselves. So secured the top four. Um, went to GMHBA Stadium, as you mentioned, qualifying final one. And it really did feel like us against the world. And, and that is quite a, an enormous metaphor because quite clearly it wasn't. But that was the way we, we built it up throughout the week. And Ross was brilliant in this aspect. The ability to draw an emotion and write a narrative for us. And he put into our minds throughout the week that the narrative externally had already been written, that Geelong have got the home final, they'll advance to the prelim. So that stirred some emotions inside of our group to understand that, you know, you don't get rolled over like that if you're a professional athlete and you're a professional team and there's opportunity. So, you know, we wrote our own narrative that day. Didn't start very well, I don't think. We um, were a bit slow to start in the first quarter, but got going therefore after that. And um, very memorable moments. And I'll always remember the Stephen Hill goal until the day I'm put to rest, I think. Come off the bench at the right time, the Aaron Sandaland spike. And you need a bit of luck. But to get that luck and put yourself in that situation, that the game was over then. And a lot of people do say, oh, you know, that that's just lucky that they win. But we're up by 10 points. We've done all the hard work and, and we're going to a home prelim, which was, yeah, a bloody surreal feeling. And, yeah, from there, obviously, propelled ourselves into our first grand final. It was huge, Michael. And speaking about huge, you were absolutely massive in that game. You were by far the best on ground. I mean, Stephen Hill, you've got to give him a lot of credit for that incredible goal, as you mentioned. But your performance, 18 contestant possessions, a game-high 32 disposals, and three goals in a pretty low-scoring game. And some of Fremantle's scores, especially in those finals, were pretty low-scoring. So you yourself, you had an incredible performance, and you were building pretty much all year for that as well. What just clicked on the day for you to bring that best performance out of yourself? Uh, probably a bit like the team. Not much clicked in the first quarter. And vividly remember standing in the huddle um, at, at quarter time, and it was the days of the sub. <laughs> the sub was around, and you want to get bad anxiety and you know, have sleepless nights. Despite probably being a regular player, probably since I started till 2015, you always feel you're always on the edge. Quarter time, I hadn't started that well. The week before was... The, the famous game, I suppose, we, we rested a good chunk of our better players, so probably yeah, 18 of our better players. <laughs> I wasn't one of those players rested. So probably in, subconsciously, I'm thinking, gee whiz, I'm not getting a kick here. Um, slow start. Tommy Sheridan's there warming up. I might have to get to work. And I remember early in the second quarter, I kicked a goal. Um, and, and I think I snuck forward and kicked another one in the second quarter. And to be honest, <laughs> in, in a team game, which the team is always first, but to play your role, you have to have to perform. That took a little bit of pressure off me, I think, that I, I'd hit the scoreboard. And then I kind of got my game going in that second quarter. And it was based around, and in all seriousness now, my game was always based around the contest and going to the ball and, and winning the contest for the outside ball users. So it, it didn't just click for me in the second quarter. We started to win the contest. 
I've watched that game a couple of times, and, and it, you can visually see it, can't you? The game start to turn just mm. in contest. It isn't any one or two moments. You, you can't maybe Pavlich goal. Pa- Pavlich kicks a goal in the first quarter to get us to kind of steady us. Mm. But the second quarter was just go to the ball, hunt the ball, outnumber at the contest. Mm. And I, and I've said this publicly a couple of times in relation to that game. Ross Lyon at quarter time. It was the most calm and composed and uh, poignant messages he's ever delivered. So sometimes he can come out rah 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 and too many numbers. You know, I'll critique him a little bit. This time he just came out, and we were searching for answers a bit. And it was that moment where we could have fallen off the cliff, or we could have. And he just said, "Boys, we're, we're right in the game. We've just got to fix this and this." And it was simply go to the contest, outnumber, support your mate. When you're under the pressure, give it to your mate. 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 Away you go. If you watch that second quarter, that's all we did. So it wasn't flashy. It was just go to the ball, win the ball, give it to your mate. And from there, the game, yeah, the game started to to turn our way a bit. And I remember going into half time, and, and Ross was just full of praise. And you could tell then. I think there was a self belief and, and a belief from from our group that we're on the right track, um, and that we're going to be pretty hard to top. Mm. I think again, externally, everyone was waiting for us to roll over. But Ross said. We'd acted on our feedback at quarter time and this is going, finals football is about supporting your teammate. Go to the ball, um, win the contest. No flashy piece of brilliance is going to lift us above an output of 22 players. So as cliche as that sounds, um, that's where it started. It was, it was started in the contest. It started with Ross kind of calming us and I really do remember that quarter time and half time uh, address and the aftermatch experience was pretty special as well. Wow, because, I mean, the thing was, you knew you had the week off, so you probably could have savoured that win a lot more rather if you were in an elimination final situation and you had to get up pretty quickly for the next week. So it's probably a good thing that you're able to really savour that as well and be with the team and be back in Western Australia after that game. Certainly, yeah, and it was absolutely a mission. So the mission was to go from Perth, flew to Avalon, we got the bus. You could feel that sense on the way there, it's a mission. This one had a special tinge to it. There was a bit of a theatre around playing at GMHBA Stadium and you know, there hadn't been a final there for however long and Geelong finished on top and it was a foregone conclusion that Freo were making up the numbers and probably not too dissimilar to the commentary around Collingwood in their first week of the finals this season was they're making up the numbers. We'll probably seen as that fourth run in, in a three-horse race. So to go there and put Geelong on the back foot and put the Victorian Median on the back foot was, was pretty bloody special. I remember the bus trip back the fulfilment to Melbourne Airport and then flying to Perth, it's, you've essentially got eight to ten hours still with these blokes in this group. It's pretty special, but I remember by the time we got back, it was, you know, enjoy it probably for another day or two. That, that You're right, that is a very unique circumstance that you have that, and we were allowed to have that extra period just to absorb and, and enjoy it. Like we were probably two years later, we beat Sydney, I think, in a qualifying final and went straight to a prelim. So there is that period where you can enjoy it, acknowledge that, you know, the other teams are going to have to butter up and go the next week and wait for what was coming the following week. So a very special day. Very special day. And you can just see from an outsider perspective that there was something really special building there at Fremantle. Now, you mentioned two weeks later, you emphatically won your first home preliminary final, beating the reigning premiers again, this time being Sydney. Now, what was the build-up like in Western Australia and specifically in the town of Fremantle going into such a historic prelim final and, of course, the club's first grand final? What was it like actually in town and how much as a player did you actually embrace of that? The two weeks are a bit of a blur. I actually wrote an article. I do a weekly article for the West Australian paper and uh, this week I wrote about 
preliminary finals and the anxieties around preliminary finals and every player would handle those type of games differently, no doubt. I wasn't one to get too anxious or nervous before games. And I think even those that are even more stoic and more level-headed than I going into the normal game would feel these anxieties and these butterflies and the, the shaky legs and the, the dry lips going into prelims. Because prelims are, you could win 22 home and away games, win your first final by 10 goals. You have to win a prelim to get an opportunity to play in the grand final. And again, I probably, an overthinker sometimes would, would think about that. So I was very anxious going into that game. Whereas some of my other teammates, I, I think they would have been similarly anxious, not to the level. Hayden Ballantyne, Lee Spur, and Cam Suckle spoke to me today about it. He goes, oh, no, just knew we were going to win that game. In that article also I wrote around, you know, it's something to be proud of making a grand final. So there's always that discussion, Ross Lyon, four grand finals, never won one. One of his great terminologies or his, his expressions of what something he used to say was open yourself up to the possibility of being devastated. So, you know, expose yourself fully. It takes a fair bit of character to open yourself up and put yourself on the line. That preliminary final, I think we all opened ourselves up just to that possibility of being devastated through good management and method. We put it all out there and we got the result. And what did calm my anxieties and nerves was the start. And when you could just tell from the start of that game, it was. Unlike the Geelong game where we were slow out of the blocks. So we rectified that and, and we didn't really give Sydney a chance to get back in. But a long way of answering your question that prelims are the best weekend of football in terms of pure football because mistakes happen because of that nervous energy. There is an element the next week in grand finals, mistakes will happen, nerves and all that. But I think there is still a fulfillment that I'm here. You know, I'm on the big stage. So getting to that big stage is quite an achievement. So yeah, it was a big two weeks. I more remember the day after, caught up with my mum and dad in Frio on the Sunday and you did try and separate yourself a bit from the mayhem that was Frio. I think they painted it purple. There was 10,000 at training on Tuesday. There was helicopters flying over on Thursday at training. There was, it was like the One Direction had come to town at the airport on the way to Melbourne. It was all pretty big and it was a great week. That was all off the back of getting the opportunity through that prelim. One of the big reasons why we're bringing this up on the podcast is that we do this segment called My Footy Memories, where I talk a little bit about my memories of, of past finals and where I was in Australia during that time. And ironically, my family and I, we were in Perth and we were in Fremantle during that prelim final week. And we remember all the streets were painted purple, but... One of the weirdest things we saw was there was a butcher that was selling purple sausages. Now, I'm not sure if you got anywhere near that. I'm sure you've got a very strict diet during, during the AFL days, but that was a bit weird. <laughs> well, I, yeah, they taste like normal sausages. I'd probably be happy to have them. But I didn't have the purple sausages. <laughs> um, I think there was streets in Freo they, they renamed for, for the week. That was happening in the lead-up to the grand final. Mm. I think a few of the players, our, our minds naturally go forward to imagine when we can enjoy this and what might go on. But as I kind of alluded to with that article I wrote today, it was open yourself up to the possibility of devastation. And we did that. Didn't go right for us on the grand final day, but very proud to sit here. Two-time delisted player. Semi-retired, I suppose, because I never got the chance to retire. But it's a special experience and not being a premiership player 
won't define me in, in any sense. I'm also considered towards guys like Matthew Pavlich and, and guys that had long careers and had opportunities. And internally, they'll be fine. But you know, externally, if people were to judge that circumstance, uh, I think it would be unfair. I think even Nathan Buckley touched on it, I think, in one of his press conferences. All these media people were saying, oh, you know, you must feel unfulfilled as a coach and, and as a captain and a player that you didn't get that opportunity. And it's like, it's a privilege to play the game. And it's a mm. real privilege to play in finals. And, you know, he played in quite a few losing grand finals but at least he had the opportunity to do that so it shouldn't define you but it's good to equally hear it from you saying that as well yeah now you gotta as i said now come back to it and i probably haven't thought about it for some time but that opening yourself up it's transferable to your whole life essentially mm. you know you play footy till i played till i was 31 very lucky but in, in the things you do you know whether it be parenting or work or relationships Probably relationships are the big one, isn't it? You, when you invest yourself in a relationship, oh, yeah. you are opening yourself up to devastation one way or the other. So I might ponder that for a second. But so, <laughs> so true. You can hide in your cave and, and put the shell on top and, and let the world pass you by. But in reference to that, that period where we made the grand final, and we had four years essentially of finals, the three years where we went top four, we opened ourselves up to give ourselves a chance. Fell short. But I always said, I remember saying probably after about, 24 hours of drinking stubbies, I would say that a lot of the boys that you'd rather lose with that group than win with other groups. But then when I went to Gold Coast and was going to play against Freo, I would have rather win with Gold Coast against Freo. But that was all in the time and circumstantial. And I never got to play against Freo uh, for the record. I broke my leg the first time. Yeah. And then Stewie didn't pick me the second year. So disappointing. Stewie, come on. <laughs> Well, that was just a little snippet of our interview with Michael Barlow, a brilliant interview, it must be said. And if you want to listen to the full interview, keep your eyes out on the In The Ballpark Spotify page and our YouTube channel because the full interview will be rolling out next week. Stella, oh, we are blessed, boys, so well done. We must move on to the final part of my footy memory story. Where did I watch the grand final from? Well, we stopped at a pub in Coolgardie to watch the grand final. And ironically, fellas, the pub we were watching the grand final from was filled with more Hawthorne supporters than Fremantle ones. And a part of me was thinking, I think these are West Coast Eagle supporters, but they've just went all out and bought Hawthorne stuff. Anyway, I heard some of those supporters saying they were popping down the road to Kalgoorlie. Now, gents, I don't know if you know a lot about Kalgoorlie, but... Kalgoorlie has the oldest brothel in Australia. So just saying, it might have been a bit of an eventful night for those Western Australians who were going for Hawthorne. Sure. You can only imagine, and you don't want to imagine, do you? Well, no, you don't. Now, when they say the oldest brothel, I hope some of the people who were there from day one aren't still operating. <laughs> oh, yes. As we drove back to Melbourne along the way, we saw the large purple bus transporting sad and sorry Fremantle supporters back from the grand final and multiple other cars painted purple. It was like a funeral procession, gentlemen. We had a tape ready for our number <laughs> plates just in case anyone mistook us for a Hawthorne fan. But honestly, it was an amazing atmosphere in Fremantle. The town truly embraced their football team and more accurate kicking and less nervousness on the big stage. And who knows, 
it could have been an entirely different scenario. But to be in Western Australia for that historic purple patch was truly a unique and eye-opening experience. And I'm glad to say I stayed away from those purple sausages. And that <laughs> is my footy memory for this week, gentlemen. Well done, sir. I believe you, just. Oh, Serpers, you are, you are full of good stories. And that is my finals footy memory for this week. Bye, bye, bye. Finals footy memory. Ultimate Grand Final Preview, Saturday, October the 24th, the 2020 Toyota AFL Grand Final. The Richmond Tigers versus the Geelong Cats. 7.40 at the Gabba. We rang Joe Exotic earlier in the week and we could not get the two big cats <laughs> to the game. Nor the Skydivers dropping the cup from the sky to land in one of the big cats' mouths. But <laughs> we have a scintillating clash planned. It is the spirit of 1967. Now, Polly Farmer, one of the true footballing legends, had his last game with Geelong. That day would provide the most bitter memory of his glittering career, believing his team had been crucified by umpires in his narrow loss to Richmond. Now, Polly Farmer, the Geelong legend, believes that video footage of the 1967 Grand Final should be examined in slow motion to this day. Richmond won the match by nine points after two controversial last-term Geelong goals were disallowed. Now, all I'm saying, guys, was this was the last time these two teams squared off in a grand final. All I'm saying is I hope history does not repeat itself. Let's hope so. That's right. It's interesting, isn't it? The, the history between the two. I was thinking about that today, actually, when their most recent grand final meeting was because I was sure that there was one, but I knew it wasn't in any of our lifetimes. So, Serbs, I'm glad you went and did that research, found that out for us. So, wonderful. Thank you. I'm going to ask you boys here, just um, in previewing the big one, of course, Saturday night, have we ever had more players in the single game that are all vying for a third flag? I'm not sure. Quite a few Cats players that are. I know there's a long gap in between them there. And, of course, probably more than half of Richmond's 22, if not something like three quarters, will be going for that. We've got some uh, extraordinary unique circumstances surrounding this one. Joel Salwood, Frizy, he's going for his fourth. Can you believe that? It takes a lot to, to do that and it's just so obvious why it isn't something that many players can say they've done. So that, that would be a truly remarkable effort, if so. Absolutely, it would be. But a lot of players there will be hungry for some silverware. And there's a lot of players, mind you as well, gents, that haven't tasted grand final glory. They will be bringing that hunger along, no doubt, on both sides. What is our tip for this almighty Victorian grand final? 
It's a tough one to tip. Richmond would be the favourites, but you can't rule out Geelong's incredible record at the Gabba this season. They haven't dropped a match there, and they've got a winning margin at the Gabba of 53 points. Will that have a bearing on the final margin? Yeah, I'm not too sure why Geelong got such a good record at, at the Gabba, but there's a couple of conflicting um, records. So Geelong have got that great record at the Gabba, but Richmond have a great record against Geelong. I think they've won five of the last six against Geelong. So we'll look back to that round 17 game I think there's a couple of lists of who the who both teams had out and they've both had a pretty impressive list as the players who didn't play in round 17 who'll be playing this week in the grand final but you know five out of the last six sort of suggests that Richmond's game style it looks pretty good against Geelong I think in the last game in round 17 they sort of preyed on that Geelong turnover around the half forward flank I think just looking at the game, Geelong had 67 turnovers against Richmond and they had 55. Uh, Richmond sort of causing those turnovers around Geelong's half-forward flank and taking it down and getting those rebound rebound goals that you can sort of just picture in your mind of Hawley, Edwards and those kind of players just rushing through the midfield and keying it to an, an open Richmond forward line. And would Geelong sort of be looking to get sort of deeper entries inside, the, inside their forward 50 and holding it in there for longer periods of time? And also another thing I'll be looking out for is are Geelong going to allow Richmond to have three defenders like we saw Port Adelaide did or will they man them up? And also what kind of attention are they going to pay to Dusty? Are they going to tag him around the ground or just go one-on-one with him when he goes forward? So... A lot of good things to be looking out for. Also, I think Jack Rewalt kicked four goals against um, the Cats last time. So it'd be interesting to see whether one of the Richmond forwards gets off the chain if they send Blitzarfs back. So I'm really barracking for Geelong because I really want to see Gary Ablett go out with the Premiership. He's one of my favourite players in the time that I've been watching footy and it would just be a bit of a fairy tale to see him go out with his third Premiership that he obviously he had a chance to win back in 2011, but he obviously left for the Gold Coast. So make up for that one premiership that he lost. But I'm hoping Geelong win, but I've got I've got a feeling that Richmond will end up winning, unfortunately. And we've got that Richmond tip there from Maxi. And of course, I think all neutral footy fans out there will be barracking for Gary Ablett Jr. He has been one of the greatest players we've ever seen play the game. And still at his ripe age of past 35, he's still kicking some extraordinary goals from outside 50, as we saw over the weekend. So he's not leaving the game out of form. He will be definitely a massive contributor over the weekend. As you mentioned there, Maxie, there was a fair list of inclusions from that round 17 clash between these two sides. On the Richmond side, you have Dion Prestia, Shane Edwards, David Asprey, and Nathan Broad. So two midfielders there and two backmen. But for Geelong, the list is a little bit more significant. They've got their inspirational skipper, Joel Salwood, back in that lineup. As you mentioned, Gary Ablett, Reece Stanley, who's in very good form, Gary Rowan, who had an excellent game over the weekend, and Sam Simpson, who it's fair to say has been a revelation for them since coming in to that second final. Some big inclusions there for both sides, but particularly Geelong. And looking at the different looking sides from round 17 to possibly the grand final lineup, the Cats forward line looks a lot more dangerous and unpredictable because Mm -hmm. during round 17, Paddy Dangerfield wasn't playing much time up forward. He is now looking at that forward line. This time round, you've got Paddy Dangerfield playing more percent up there. Gary Rowan, Gary Ablett, and Sam Simpson. So a couple of Garys and a couple of tall timber, big, bulky men there, which might just make the difference for the Cats. 
Fryzy, what is your big tip, my man? Because you're going to be the virtual umpire on this day. So as biased as you may be tempted to be, what is your unbiased tip? Certainly trying not to be, guys. I'm actually taking the Cats here by one to two goals for me. I just feel like their all-round consistency this year, but especially their strong final series that they've had, combined with the story of Gaz. I mean, how could anyone really downplay this Richmond side and what they've achieved and what they continue to show us with their abilities to, to stand up in finals games? And how, how do you really break down their system? It's almost impossible. And as we said, a lot has changed between the, the teams, even from that home and away clash. I just get the gut feeling that this is all lined up to be perfect timing for the Cats. I thought pre-finals, it might have all been lined up to go Brisbane's way, you know, win, win, win at home. I think as many of us thought, forget that because it's not to be. And I just feel like, not that it wouldn't be for the Tigers either, absolutely not, but I feel like this would be a much deserved one for for the Cats should they complete the mission because they've been quite flawless at times this season. All of these uncontested marks, they really get the game on their terms And it's fair to say when they do that, they shut down most teams, even some of the good ones in the comp. It's going to be interesting to see, again, who shuts down Dusty and how much attention is put to him. I'd love to see one of those Geelong players, possibly Paddy Dangerfield, be a little bit physical with him because we don't see that physicality too often against Dustin Martin. And we know when there's a player hanging off him, there has been times where he has lost his call. Will that finally be done in a grand final as a tactic? Well, we'll have to see. Interesting. I've been looking at a few stats, gentlemen, and I've been watching the way Richmond have won their grand finals over the last four years, and they've conceded the first goal. That's right. They've conceded the first goal, and they've ended up in all of those clashes, went on to win by a fair margin. So if you're listening, Geelong, concede the first goal. Allow Richmond to kick the first goal and then it'll (laughs) flip it on its head and they won't feel so comfortable. So I'm saying the first goal doesn't necessarily mean everything in a grand final. It's a very hard game to tip, guys. We've got one Richmond, we've got one Geelong. Similar in Maxi's camp, I can just see the Tigers winning this one. But gee whiz, wouldn't it be great to see Gary Ablett go out on a high and win this incredible premiership. It's certainly the year to do it. I I feel more confident with Geelong playing at the Gabba rather than at the MCG against Richmond. But again, it's hard to see the champs coughing this one up. But equally, as Fryzy said, it'd be a good farewell story for Gary Ablett Jr. I'm tipping Richmond, yes. Okay. (laughs) I just wanted to make that clear. There it is. I am tipping Richmond. Let's tip some margins. I'll go Richmond by 16 points. I'm going to tip Richmond by 13 points. The Cats by just seven for me. Norm Smith, I'll go bash off Willie. I reckon he's, he should have won one. I reckon he'll make up for it with this one. I don't want to be so generic and stating the obvious and pick Dangerfield, but I know it's going to backfire in my face if I don't. So, yeah, the man in the number 35 for me, and I'm not talking about Paul Chapman this time. <laughs> I'm going to tip a bit of a different one here. I'm going to tip Daniel Rioli for the Norm Smith. Rioli. It's a little bit different. I feel like he's got a big X factor and a big upside. He's just building nicely. Equally, I could see someone like a Shy Bolton winning this as well. But knowing the last couple of seasons, it's probably going to be Dustin Martin again. Who knows? (laughs) 
Well, if he if he wins three, he's definitely the greatest um, finals player of all time. I don't think anyone else has won three. You know, I'm from memory. I think a couple of people won two, but no one's won three. No, you're absolutely right. That will absolutely end that debate once and for all. If he wins three, he'll be the greatest finals player of all time, and that will be an extraordinary achievement from him. Who are we tipping for the first goal? Brian Myers. <laughs> That's a fantastic uh, guess. I'm actually going to go Basher for this one. I remember that extraordinary goal he kicked early against uh, the Crows in that grand final win, and I can't comment from having not been at the ground, but it was a, it was a surprise, I think, that the, the stadium didn't just about collapse due to the noise. I've tipped Richmond here, and they always concede the first goal if they win a premiership, so I'm going to stick true to that, and I'm going to say my man Gary Rowan is going to kick a goal, and then he's not going to be cited for the rest of the game. <laughs> I reckon that's a I know it's a little stiff on Gary but you can see it happening yeah well our tips have been submitted who will be the correct one or ones here we will soon find out well gentlemen this is going to be a great game we are going to debrief and talk about every little bit of action that happens on grand final evening next week on in the ballpark gentlemen thank you so much for your analysis tonight It's been an absolute pleasure as always. Look forward to next week. Can't wait for it. Thanks, Seth. Boys, great work again. Thank you. Until then, thank you for listening on In The Ballpark. Hey, Stephen Seagal! Hey, Stephen! Stephen Seagal!